You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. All right, it is great to see you today. It's been a while, and it's been good to be back. Uh, the last month, um, you've given me just some time off from preaching on Sunday morning, which has been so good for my soul in so many different ways. So I want to thank you for that. And at the same time, man, I've missed you. So it is great to be back with you, and I'm looking forward to seeing what the Lord has for us this morning. And if this is one of your first mornings at Stonegate, you have picked a good one to be at. You're at kind of a special Sunday morning. We're calling it Ascending Sunday. And it's a Sunday where we are going to be commissioning and sending and praying for a group of our people who are going to be leaving our church family today to go plant a church up in the Cedar Hill area. And so, uh, so you're going to get to be a part of that. We're going to get to do that today. So um, in an effort to kind of get us down the road of that and just, just kind of start thinking down that road, let me, let me throw out a question to you and, uh, and then we'll chat about it. If somebody were to come to you and ask you the question, what is a healthy church? How would you respond to that? What is a healthy church? And there's obviously so many different things you could say in response to that question. Um, So many different angles you could come at to try to answer it. But there is a particular phrase in Acts chapter 11. And by the way, we're going to be in Acts 13. So if you want to go ahead and flip there, that would be helpful to have that out and open on your lap. But there is a phrase in Acts chapter 11 that I think in just a single phrase gives like the overarching umbrella of what makes a church a healthy church. If I just had one thing to say about it, I would want to say what Acts 11 says about a church. So let me give you the context so you can kind of put this statement inside of it. So if you think about Acts, here's what has happened. Um, in Acts 2, Peter has preached a sermon. The Holy Spirit just blew the thing up and a couple of thousand people got saved. And this is kind of the New Testament church getting its foothold into uh, Jerusalem. And from there, if you kind of read forward in Acts 3, 4, 5, you've got the church multiplying and expanding in Jerusalem. More disciples are being made. Um, new people are meeting Jesus. More people are needing to be cared for you know, by the church. So you've got the church um, that started and it's kind of got its foothold and now it's expanding and, and growing. And then you get to Acts chapter eight and the church is huddled up in Jerusalem and persecution, like systematic persecution breaks out in in Jerusalem. Now think about just the context of that persecution. In Acts chapter one, um, the Holy Spirit has said, okay, so here's the thing. Jesus has made it clear. You're gonna be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria. That's a a place not in Jerusalem, right? That's kind of an outer place. Then all the way to the ends of the earth. But by the time you get to Acts chapter eight, the church is still kind of in their holy huddle, still doing the Jerusalem thing. It hasn't really broken out past Jerusalem. So God sends persecution in Acts chapter eight and it scatters the church. Now on the surface, you would think that's terrible, but in the providence of God, it was a great thing because what do you think the people of God that got scattered from Jerusalem started doing? They started talking about Jesus and people started meeting Jesus that weren't in Jerusalem. So you have disciples being made outside of Jerusalem now. And eventually you get churches being planted outside of Jerusalem. And in Acts chapter 11, you get one of the first church plants outside of kind of the Jerusalem bubble. And that was in Antioch. So disciples are being made in Antioch. There's a church that's planted in Antioch. And now the church in Jerusalem is like, we've got to go check that thing out. So they look at Barnabas, one of their faithful brothers in Jerusalem. And they say, Barnabas, we need you to go to Antioch and give us a report. Tell us what's happening down there. So uh, Barnabas heads down to Antioch and he gets there. He surveys the landscape of the church in Antioch and listen to what he says in Acts chapter 11, verse 23. He says, it says, when he came, when Barnabas came, he saw the grace of God. Now just think about that statement. He came to a church and it says he saw 
saw the grace of God. He was able to like see the invisible grace of God with his eyes as he looked at this church. Now, if I were trying to give like the thing that makes a church a healthy church, that is the statement I would wanna throw out. It is when people can come in like Barnabas, he can come into a place and he can just get a sense that God is there. He can look at this, th these people and he can see the grace of God is among them. That, that is when you know you have a healthy church. Now, this is also a sobering thing, isn't it? Here's what it doesn't say. It doesn't say Barnabas came in and he read their kind of doctrine, you know, doctrinal statement and it was perfectly accurate. That's not what it says. So for a church to be healthy, it is more than just having accurate theology. It's not less than that, but it is more than that. To, to, for a church to be healthy, yes, you need to be doctrinally accurate. But yes, on the other side, you need a culture that reflects your doctrine. Maybe you could think about it this way. A church's health isn't just determined by what they believe, kind of their doctrinal statement. It's not just determined by what they believe. It's also determined by what you can see. Do you, do you see that? Barnabas comes in. Yes, the theology is good, but even just as important, he is coming in and he sees something about this church. And what he sees is the grace of God at work in that church. So for a church to be healthy, yes, we need right doctrine. Yes to that. All day long, our creed needs to be right. And at the same time, our culture also has to be right. So it's both of those two things together. So when Barnabas comes into the church at Antioch, that's what he sees. Yes to gospel doctrine and yes to a culture that reflects the doctrine that they believe. Now here comes the next question with that. What about this church did, did Barnabas see that, that kind of set that culture apart? Like what is it that he saw happening in that church and among that church so that when he took a step back, he could say, man, I can see the presence of God here. Like, what is it that that church was doing that put flesh and bones on the grace and mercy of God so that it could be seen and felt by the people who were interacting with that church, in particular Barnabas? The answer to that question comes in Acts 13, the first three verses. Why is it that Barnabas could say, I am seeing the grace of God in this place? What enabled him to say that? First three verses of Acts 13 show us. Verse one of Acts 13. Now, now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Verse three, then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. This is the word of God. Now, I would love to talk about verse one. If you just look at verse one, here's what you're seeing. Just in a nutshell, you are seeing a very diverse group of leaders at a church and a very diverse church. I would love to talk about that on how diversity in a church is one of the ways that when people come into a church, they can see the grace of God at work. But we don't have time this morning. So I wanna go to verses two and three and point out two marks that you see in this church that enabled Barnabas to say, I can see the grace of God here. It, there is flesh and bones on the grace of God. It is felt among this church. Two marks that we see in verses two and three. Here is mark number one. Mark number one, spiritual vitality. So part of what it Part of what's required for a person to walk in and actually have a felt sense of God 
For them to walk in and see grace is spiritual vitality. Now look at how it reads in verses two and three. While they, this is the church in Antioch, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. You see spiritual vibrancy just embedded into this passage. So what what does it mean when we say, or we talk about spiritual vitality? What does it mean to be a a spiritually vibrant person? Answer, this will be on the screen for you. A spiritually vibrant person has a heart that's open and alive to Jesus. A spiritually vibrant person has a heart that is both open to Jesus and alive to Jesus. Now contrast that with a heart that would be cold and calloused and kind of closed off to Jesus. That is the opposite of spiritual vitality. But spiritual vitality is when a person has a heart that is open to Jesus. God, what do you want and when and I'm there? It's open to Jesus. It's alive to Jesus, engaging with Jesus. A spiritually vibrant person is that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus move into their heart in such a way where, where what is dead in them has now come alive with what used to be cold in them has now thawed out and become warm to Jesus. Where they used to be closed off and and afraid of God, now they are open with God. It is warm with with them and God. That is spiritual vibrancy. And in this passage, you're seeing all sorts of marks of spiritual vitality. Let me just give you a couple of them. Things that we're seeing that that lead into spiritual vitality. Let me give you three. The first one is right in verse two. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, Here's one mark of spiritual vitality. They were worshiping Jesus. That that is one mark of of us being spiritually, like the the vitality there, the vibrancy there. They are worshiping Jesus. Now, when you think about worshiping Jesus, here's one of the kind of the cultural myths that you need to cut through. Worship of Jesus is not just we've gathered together and we're singing together. It's not less than that, but it is much more than that. Worship of Jesus is a wholehearted kind of a whole life surrender to Jesus. This is worshiping Jesus. It reminds me of a story of Elizabeth and Jim Elliott. You you might've heard their story, really popular missionaries. Um, Them and four other couples moved to Ecuador to try to reach kind of the native Indians of Ecuador, native tribes in Ecuador. And uh, one of the tribes they were trying to reach, every time someone had made contact from the outside, the people of this tribe had killed whoever those outsiders were. And so the men that kind of made up these missionary couples, they were working hard to try to kind of get some sort of a pathway into this tribe. So they were dropping gifts out of a plane, food out of a plane, just everything they could to kind of soften up that first initial introduction. And finally, they kind of deemed that we had done all the prep work necessary. We are going to go have the moment where we physically introduce ourselves to these people. So they flew their little float plane in, they they landed, um, they get out. The initial introduction was great. And then all five of these men were speared to death by these about this tribe. And later that day, a news came back to Elizabeth, Jim Elliott's wife. And the, the lady came to her and said, Elizabeth, I've got just terrible news. Jim has died today. And Elizabeth looked back at this lady and said, no, he, he did not die today. And this lady looked back again and said, Elizabeth, J- Jim died today. And she said, no, he, he did not die today. He didn't. And finally, this this lady kind of took Elizabeth in her hands and said, Elizabeth, your husband, Jim, he died today. And Elizabeth looked back again and said, listen, I know what you're saying, but he did not die today. 
He died when he was 16 years old and knelt beside his bed and said, God, waste my life on you. That's the day that he died. And that is worship of Jesus. It is when we are willing to take the entirety of our life, our ambitions, our hopes, everything about our life, our heart, and we're willing to offer it up to Jesus and say, whatever you want, whenever you want it, I am there. You just name it and I'm there. That is worship according to Romans 12. That is what worship looks like. It's this wholehearted, whole life surrender of Jesus. And this is what we see in the church in Antioch. They are worshiping Jesus. Here's the second mark that we see in verses two and three. They are praying and fasting to Jesus. Prayer and fasting are just embedded into the culture of this church. This is part of what Barnabas saw when he got there. He surveys the church and he is seeing these people are praying and they are fasting. So let's just take both parts. What is prayer? Um, I love how the New City Catechism talks about prayer. Um, If you have not heard of the New City Catechism, you should download the app. It's one of the resources we try to provide and make available to all of our families. It would be such a good tool in your house if you're trying to disciple your kids. It's questions about theology with simple language to describe, simple answers to describe the answers to those questions. And and, uh, question 38 in the New City Catechism asks this, what is prayer? Here's the answer to question 38. Prayer is pouring out our hearts to God. It's pouring out our hearts to God. Now contrast that with what you so often see happen in prayer. Prayer is when we take our heart and we pour it out before God. It's not just saying some words. It is pouring our heart out to God. Prayer is the way that we get to know God. It's the way that we engage with God. It's the way that we commune with God. Prayer is that vital. And one of the things that I love about the Psalms, you know, if you've been here in the month of July, we just spent the month of July in the Psalms. And one of the things that I love about the Psalms, okay, so track this. If spiritual vibrancy is here, this is, this is kind of the goal that we're going for. And if prayer, it, pouring out our heart to God is one of the, the evidences of spiritual vitality, then the Psalms are showing us what spiritual vitality looks like in everyday life. That they are showing us what it looks like to relate to God in prayer in a spiritually vibrant way. And if you just start reading the Psalms, you can't miss it. Think about Psalm 42. The psalmist says, God, as the deer pants for the water, God, that's how I am longing and thirsting and wanting you, oh God. I mean, think about Psalm 121. This is when the psalmist is in trouble. He needs God to deliver him. And what does he say in Psalm 121? I look up to the hills from where does my help come from? Verse two, my help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He is pouring out his heart to God. This is what you see in the Psalm. This is one of the the marks of spiritual vitality. It's when we are praying in such a way where our heart gets filleted and it is now open before God and our heart is now connecting to God. The real God to to us, the real us. That, That is a mark of spiritual vitality. And then he goes on and says fasting. He sees both prayer and fasting in this church. What is fasting? Fasting is one of the ways that the people of God give expression to the deep ache and longing in their soul for Jesus and his return. Fasting is one of the ways, it's one of the expressions of the people of God and their longing for Jesus and his return. So so when we fast, when we forego food, when when we go without food for an extended period of time, it is a way of saying, God, the ache that I feel in my soul right now for food, 
Like in my stomach right now, I want food so bad, but that ache pales in comparison to how much I want you, oh God. That's fasting. Now, let's just take that on the other side. What if we don't want God in the way that we know we should want God right now? When we fast, we are saying to God, the the way I feel right now toward food, how badly I want food right now, God. That is the way that I want to want you. So God, will you please give me that sort of an ache for you? That, That is fasting. It's a way of saying, God, I want you. I am longing for Jesus and his return. And prayer and fasting are a mark of spiritual vitality. It's a mark of a heart that is alive to Jesus, longing for Jesus, wanting Jesus. Prayer and and fasting are a mark of that. And then we see the third mark of spiritual vitality. So they worship Jesus. they, They are praying and fasting. And here's the third mark. They listen and obey. They are listening and obeying Jesus. So if you look at verses two and three, this is kind of the play out. You have the Holy Spirit come to them and he tells them something. And they hear, the church in Antioch hears what the Holy Spirit said. And then they do something crazy. They just obey it. They just, they just do what it is that God said do. What it is that they had just heard from him, that they obey it. So you see the pattern. They hear from the Lord. The Lord speaks, they listen, and then they obey. It's one of the marks of spiritual vitality. Now, let me just throw out a couple of clarifying remarks in terms of the Lord speaking to us. Clarifying remark number one, the Lord still speaks to us, right? If you're a follower of Jesus, here is what we all need to be convinced of. The Lord actually talks to us. Now, here's clarifying remark number two. How does God do that? The primary way that God speaks to his people is through the Bible. It's, it's us opening up the Bible and us reading it. That is God's written authoritative word to us. This is how the primary diet that God uses. If you just picture, you know, hearing from the Lord as a diet, the, the staple kind of attribute of that diet is us opening up the word and us listening to the Lord. This is the primary way that he speaks. Here's the next clarifying statement. So God speaks. The primary way he does that is through the word. Here's the next clarifying statement. Although the Bible is the primary way God speaks to us, it is not the only way God speaks to us. God also speaks to us through things like promptings, through things like impressions, through dreams, through visions. God speaks to us in all of those ways too. So all, and that's what's happening in, in Antioch. They didn't open up the Bible and see, hey, you should send off Paul and Barnabas. That's not how it went. The Holy Spirit spoke to them, visions, dreams, impressions, promptings, and then they listened and obeyed that. Here's the the next clarifying comment. This is probably the most important one. Every way that God speaks to us outside of the Bible. So here's how God speaks to us, the Bible. Here is every other way God might speak to us. Clarifying statement here. Every way God speaks to us outside of the Bible has to be submitted to what God says to us in the Bible. We seeing that? So like God, this is the primary diet. He speaks to us in the Bible. Here's all the other ways that God speaks to us. Here's the key in how we hear from from God. The Bible has to go here and every other way God speaks to us has to be submitted to the Bible. So that if a person comes up to you and says, hey, I heard from the Lord last night, vision, dream, prompting, impression. He told me to do X, but you know in the Bible that God has clearly said, don't do X. Here is what you know in that moment. They might've had a bad burrito last night. I don't know, but they are not hearing from the Lord accurately, right? The Bible is always wins. It's always the trump card. It's always the thing that we're leaning on when we're hearing from the Lord. But here's the point that I'm trying to make. A mark of spiritual vitality is just this real simple thing. 
The Lord speaks, we listen, and then we obey. That is like a mark of spiritual vitality. It's that simple thing. The Lord speaks to us, we listen, and then we obey. Now think about the church in Antioch. They are not looking back. Like Barnabas didn't come in and say, you know what, 10 years ago in the church in Antioch, the Lord spoke to them, they listened, and they obeyed. No, this is not some distant memory for them. This is like right now in the present, in their life, the Lord is speaking, they are listening, and they are obeying. This is a mark of what it means to be alive and, and open to Jesus is we hear from the Lord. We listen. He, he speaks, we listen, and then we obey whatever it is that he is saying. Now, let's just take a moment to apply this in our own life. Are you hearing from the Lord and obeying the Lord? Like, is the Lord speaking to you? You open up the Bible, you read it. The Lord's speaking to you, you listen, and then you're actually putting that into action. See, I, I think where a lot of us get stuck is like we hear from the Lord and then we stuff it under a lot, like 19 layers of busyness and just things and we never get to obedience. That is the opposite of spiritual vitality. Spiritual vitality is we are alive and open. We hear, the Lord speaks, we hear from the Lord and then we actually put it into action, we obey it. So let me just sum it up this way. When we're talking about spiritual vitality, a spiritually vibrant person has a heart that's engaging with Jesus, desiring more of Jesus, thinking about Jesus, deflecting credit to Jesus, remaining open to Jesus. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus means everything to them. A spiritually vibrant person has a heart that's sensitive to Jesus, affected by Jesus, knows and is knowing Jesus. A spiritually vibrant person has a heart that is obeying Jesus, looks to Jesus, finds life in Jesus, and is about the glory of Jesus. That is what it means to be spiritually vibrant. Now, let me just take this little turn here. If a church is ever going to be spiritually vibrant, it means the people, the individuals that make up that church have to be spiritually vibrant. See how that works? We'll never corporately be spiritually vibrant if you and I aren't spiritually vibrant. So like where this should lead us as we're looking at the church in Antioch is just to ask the question, am I spiritually vibrant? Like, is there like this wholehearted, like life surrender to you, God? Am I worshiping Jesus like that? Prayer and fasting, am I pouring my heart out to God? Are there days and moments where I am foregoing food and foregoing things as a way of saying, oh God, I want you more than that. I'm longing for Jesus in a way that is bigger than that. Are we hearing from the Lord, listening and obeying? Now, if you're answering yes to that this morning, then what a great moment to say, God, would you deepen that? God, I am alive, but I want to be more alive. I am open, but I want to be more open. But if your answer is no to that, what a great morning to turn back to Jesus this morning and to say, oh God, this is not me today. But oh God, I want to be. God, help me be that. God, lead me down this path of being that. Barnabas comes into the church and he sees the grace of God. And one of the reasons that he could see the grace of God is because this church was spiritually vibrant. But we have another mark, another, another attribute that Barnabas saw in this church that made him say, I can actually see the grace of God. The grace of God has flesh and bones on it. And here is the second mark that he saw in the church in Antioch. The second mark is this. They were sending for the sake of multiplication. That this was a church willing to send out for the sake of multiplication. This is one of the reasons Barnabas could say, man, I just sense God in this place. 
is they were willing to do something like this, send out for the sake of multiplication. Now, I want to do some work around this word multiplication. This is a massive, I mean, it's a big biblical theme in the, in the scriptures. So I just want to take a few minutes to work through this theme with you. We're just going to start all the way back in Genesis. And I want to kind of end in Revelation and just help you see how interwoven this particular theme is in the scriptures. So multiplication, let's start all the way back in Genesis chapter one. If you remember in Genesis chapter one, um, God creates everything that we see. Then he makes what he has created inhabitable. He prepares a place for his people. Then he creates Adam and Eve. And then after he creates Adam and Eve, he puts them in this inhabitable place called the Garden of Eden. And then his first words to our first parents, do you remember what they were? Here were his first words that God spoke to our first parents. He looked at them and said, here's what I want you to do. Be fruitful and multiply. So you have the theme of multiplication starting in Genesis chapter one. He looked at them and says, be fruitful and multiply. Then you get to Genesis chapter three and our first parents sin against God. And in the moment of that sin, their hearts grew dark and their dark hearts just infected by the virus of sin is then passed down to their kids. And that dark heart is then passed down to their kids. And that's then passed down to their kids. And generationally, you have one generation after another that has grown dark hearted sinful toward God, thinking God is not their friend, but their enemy. And, and that dark heartedness and sinfulness grew so bad that in Genesis chapter six, God's, God kind of comes down and he pronounces judgment on them by sending a flood that literally wipes out the face of the planet in Genesis six. But God in his grace saved a remnant. He saved Noah and his family. And then when Noah and his family are getting out of the boat, do you remember some of God's first words to Noah and his family? This is in Genesis chapter nine. Some of God's first words to Noah go like this. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. You have the same sort of, you know, blessing that was pronounced on our first parents, now pronounced over Noah and his family. That same theme of multiplication, be fruitful and multiply. Now, if you look at this kind of, the opening kind of shots at this theme of multiplication, it's obvious that the primary thing the Lord is talking about contextually in these passages is procreation. God is saying, I want you to make babies and I want you to make enough where you've got descendants that are spreading across the planet and you are subduing this planet. I want you to do that. So, so it's obvious that physical procreation is the heart of this, you know, what, what's happening here contextually. But I want you to think about this. What God has embedded into his physical creation in other words, be fruitful and multiply. That is a theme embedded into how God has designed life to work. Be fruitful and multiply. That theme embedded into the physical, physical creation is meant to be a signpost pointing us to Jesus's agenda in his kingdom. Do you see that? God is saying, be, like, be fruitful and multiply. Make babies, have, spiritual, or have descendants. And that is meant to be a signpost that points us to Jesus saying, I want spiritual descendants. I want there to be a massive amount of people, a whole like set of descendants in my kingdom, all worshiping me. Now we know that because by the time you get to Genesis 12, we get to the story of Abraham. And if you remember that story, God comes to Abraham, he makes a promise. I'm gonna bless you, Abraham. Everyone that blesses you, I'm gonna bless. And here's what I'm gonna do for you, Abraham. I'm gonna make your descendants so numerous that they are going to be like the stars in the sky. You're not, you're not even gonna be able to count them, Abraham. Now, what is God talking about there with Abraham? 
that the fulfillment of that promise to Abraham was not found in just a particular physical son that he had. That, that promise to Abraham is found in a church just like this, full of Christians worshiping Jesus together right now in the year 2016. It's fulfilled in you and me. That, that's why we grew up in, in Sunday school singing Father Abraham, right? That's, that's, that's the picture. This is what God was promising. All of these spiritual descendants that are gonna come after you. Then the people of God are right on the brink of the promised land and God wants them to multiply in the promised land. So he gives them his law so that they can multiply in the promised land. This is what you get in Deuteronomy 6, verse three where it says this, hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, all this law that he's commanded them, that it may go well with you and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers has promised to you in a land flowing with milk and honey. If you know the story, they get into the promised land. They don't obey the law very well. So God sends them into exile. And do you remember what God says to them in Jeremiah 29, while they are in exile? Here it is, Jeremiah 29, 6. While they're in exile, he says, take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. So if we're just looking at the Old Testament, it is clear that the theme of multiplication is embedded into the Old Testament, but it's also embedded into the New Testament. It's, it's just interwoven into the New Testament just, you know, just as well. Uh, you kind of fast forward now. We're into Matthew chapter 28. This is some of Jesus' last words to his disciples. One of the last things he looked at them and says is, hey, I want you to go and make disciples. Jesus could have said that in a different way. He could have looked at his disciples and said, disciples, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go and I want you to be fruitful and multiply. It's the same thing. He is saying, go be fruitful and multiply. Go and make disciples. That's what I want you to do. This is, this is my agenda for you. Then you get into Acts chapter one, verse eight. Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, I want you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. I want you to go and be fruitful and multiply. And then in chapter two, disciples are made. Churches get planted. More disciples are made. Churches get planted. More disciples are made. Churches get planted. More disciples are made. Churches get planted. And that is how multiplication in the kingdom of God works. Disciples are made. Churches are planted. They are being fruitful. They are multiplying. Disciples are made. Churches are planted. There's multiplication. And you have the fulfillment of that multiplication seen in Romans chapter seven, verses nine and 10. Here's our picture of heaven. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude. Now, how do you get to a great multitude? It started out with just a person. It started out here and it multiplies, 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 multiplies. Then you get to a great multitude. A great multitude that no one could number. I mean, it, it's God saying, hey, Abraham, do you remember when I said your, your descendants are gonna be as numerous as the, the stars in the sky? That is happening. Heaven is gonna be full with that many descendants of Abraham. A great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Now here's what I'm trying to convince you of. The theme of multiplication is interwoven into the scriptures. But now here's what I want you to see in Acts chapter 13. That same theme of multiplication is interwoven into the church at Antioch. That the church that got planted in Antioch values multiplication, primarily because God values multiplication. It's God's idea. He's the one that came up with this idea of multiplication. So now they value multiplication. You see this in verse two and three. Look at verse two. 
Acts 13, verse two. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So just think about the moment here. The Holy Spirit comes to the people of God in Antioch and he speaks to them. And he says to them, I want you to set apart Barnabas and Saul and I want you to send them out because I have work for them to do. Now, if you read forward from Acts 13, here is the work that you're gonna find them doing. They make disciples and then they plant a church. They go to a different place. They make disciples and they plant a church. They go to another place. They make disciples and plant a church and then to another place and make disciples and plant a church. And that goes on and on and on. This is, what, this is the work that you see them doing in Acts. Now, here is a point about multiplication that we all need to come to grips with right now in this moment. And you see this in the, this moment in Antioch as they are multiplying. Here is a attribute of multiplication that we all need to come to grips with. Multiplication is always costly. There is never a moment where multiplication is not costly. It is always costly. Uh, costly. So think about what this meant for the church in Antioch to multiply. The Holy Spirit comes to them and he doesn't say, hey, grab some of your driftwood as a church and why don't you send them out to plant? You know, the kind of people that are marginally kind of, what you send, that's not what he says. He says, hey, I want you to take Barnabas and I want you to take Saul. Now think about who Barnabas and Saul are. They are, they are studs. I mean, they're the people, if, if, if they came to Stonegate right now and they walked in, here's what I would be thinking if Barnabas and Saul came in. I'm gonna go ahead and take the demotion right now. Saul's our new pastor. Barnabas is his right-hand man and we're doing this thing and it's gonna be awesome, right? I mean, they, they are like the cream of the crop. They, they are mature, godly men who have great apostolic sort of giftings. I mean, they are that sort of a person. And yet that is exactly who the Holy Spirit says, hey, do you know your best people? I want you to take your best people and I want you to send those guys out so they can make disciples and plant a church. I want you to do that. And see, that idea of multiplication being costly, by the way, this is why so many churches are not in for multiplication because it hurts to multiply a church. When you send out a Paul and a Barnabas, it creates more work for everyone else. When you send out a, par, a Paul and a Barnabas, it is like a punch in the gut for a church family. It hurts to do that. It is costly to do that. Now, let's just take this theme of multiplication. I wanna apply it in two different ways really briefly. Here's the first way. Let's apply it to home groups. We are in a season of our church's life where we are praying for the multiplication of home groups. We're praying over the next 15 or 16 months that we would um, be able to plant about 17 home groups. So we're praying for 17 home groups by the end of 2017. Now to plant a home group, that means we have to have healthy, qualified, and equipped leaders to plant that group. So we're praying for 17 home groups in the next 15 or 16 months by the end of 2017. And you know, I've been at Stonegate now for about seven years since we started. And the home group that I've been a part of has planted multiple home groups. And can I just tell you what that has felt like in every moment of planting a home group? It has felt like this. Oh gosh, I really don't want to do this. I really don't want to. We're sending out our best friends. We're sending out people that we're very close to. We're sending out people that are carrying heavy burdens in our home group. We're sending out those sort of people. And every time it's like a sideways pill going down. It just doesn't ever feel good to do that. But in every one of those moments, here is what is one, the value of multiplication. Now, if you're a home group leader in the room 
If we're ever going to be a church that is multiplying our home groups, here is the value that's always got to win, even as the multiplication pill is going down sideways. The value has to win. That this is God's agenda. It is God's idea. This is what God wants from us. This is what God's desire, even when it's costly to us, even when it creates more work for us, even when it feels like a punch in the gut, even when we're losing our best friends, this is what God wants for us. This is honoring and pleasing to the Lord to do this, to, to be able to send our best people out to go plant home groups. Now, let me switch and kind of get on the other end of this stick for a moment. Planting a home group is not just hard for, for the people sending Paul and Barnabas out. Sending Paul and Barnabas out, kind of that inside of a home group setting, that is also hard for the Paul and Barnabas. See, if you're the Paul and Barnabas and you can just kind of sit in a home group and chill for the rest of your life, it's comfortable, you're well cared for, you've got good relationships here, all that stuff is awesome. It is really easy to think, I'm just gonna stay in kind of my comfortable cocoon and I'm just gonna do life where it's nice and easy. But if we're going to be a church that actually multiplies and actually plants numerous home groups in the next 15 months, it's gonna require many of us that have been sitting kind of idly watching multiplication happen, but not actually participating in multiplication. It's going to take us that are kind of sitting on the sides of that right now, just chilling in a home group. It's gonna take us to get into the flow of that. And when you get yourself into the lane of multiplication, here's what it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you, you. It's going to mean that you have to grow and mature in ways that aren't going to be comfortable. It's going to have to mean that, that you're going to face yourself and learn things about you that you don't want to know about you. I would just rather be kind of blissful, blissfully ignorant about half the things about me. Like half my sin, I'm just like, if that could just stay suppressed and under lock and key where I don't ever see that, I would just be happier. But if you're ever going to be a good leader of people, all that stuff's gotta be drug out. All that stuff has to be seen so that you can actually be an effective leader of people. See, for, for the people that are the Pauls and Barnabases of tomorrow that are just sitting in a group, it would maybe just be a good just moment for us right now, for everyone in the room, just to ask the Lord, God, would you, would you want me to be like a Paul and Barnabas that I'm gonna get equipped I'm gonna put myself into kind of the equipping lanes for the sake of planting a group in a year from now, in six months from now, in 18 months from now. God, would you want that for me? And I just can't help but believe there's a lot of people in the room who as the spirit talks to you, obedience is gonna look like yes to that. God, God wants me to get in that lane and start pursuing those sorts of things. And if that's you, you need to see Travis Wyckoff like before you leave today. You're gonna be his new best friend. He's gonna love you if your answer is yes to that. So he would love to kind of get you in an equipping lane so that we can start heading down the road of getting our home groups multiplied. But let me apply it a different way now. So in one way we could apply it kind of internally to our church in terms of home groups. But here's another way we can apply this theme of multiplication and that's in church planting. Church planting is the way that the church of Jesus Christ multiplies itself. I'll say it again. Church planting is the way that the church of Jesus Christ multiplies itself. Now, let me just have you think about it like this. Have you ever thought how crazy it is that you are in Midlothian, Texas, at a church called Stonegate, sitting here today worshiping Jesus? That is a crazy thing. Now, just, let's just trace this for a moment. Let's go all the way back to, uh, to Jerusalem. It's Acts 2, Pentecost just happens. A bunch of people get saved. 
a church is planted in Jerusalem. Another one gets planted a little bit later on in Antioch. And then more disciples are made. More churches get planted. More disciples are made. Another church gets planted. More disciples are made. Another church gets planted. More disciples are made. Another church gets planted. Now we have a spread across Europe. As more disciples are made, more churches get planted down into Africa, all, all the way to the east. More disciples are made. More churches are planted. Eventually it flies over the pond, you know, skips over the pond. We're over the Atlantic, we're into America. More disciples are made, more churches get planted, more disciples are made, churches get planted. And that process happens all the way to Texas. Is that not crazy? That that's how a church like this exists. And, and all the way into Texas, way back in the day, there was a church, if you can picture I-20 and, and uh, 287, they, they connect just right up the road from us. Right there in that little corner, there's a church called Tate Springs that way back in the day got planted. And a guy named Charles Clary was pastoring that church. It's represented by that little dot right there. That's Tate Springs. And, uh, and one day, Charles Clary was just doing his thing, pastoring Tate Springs. And a guy, an African-American, walked into his church and said, man, the Lord has put on me to plant a church. I wanna plant a church. And Charles looked at that guy, his name was Dwight McKissick, and said, great, I would love to help you plant a church. And eventually you have a daughter church planted out of Tate Springs. It's called uh, Cornerstone up in Arlington, right off Matlock. And then another guy walks in and he says, man, I wanna plant a church. And Charles says, man, I would love to help you plant a church. Let's do that. And then another church is planted called South Oaks, right off 287 on the north side of the road if you're you know, driving toward Fort Worth. And then another guy walks in and says, I want to plant a church. And Charles looks at him and says, man, I would love to help you plant a church. Let's do that. And another church up in Arlington called Rush Creek got planted. So Rush Creek is now uh, planted out of Tate Springs. And then they had a guy on staff who was doing uh, kind of collegiate singles kind of ministry for them who he wanted to plant a church. And Charles looked at him and said, you know what? I would love to help you plant a church. Let's figure that out and do it. And then another church got planted called Walnut Ridge. Now, let me just back up for a second and just make a comment on these four churches. Two or three Easter's ago, um, those churches got together and kind of tallied their Easter attendance. And they called Charles Clary, who used to be the pastor of this church. And they said, Charles, you're not gonna believe this, but today you had over 10,000 people worshiping Jesus. That's what you call multiplication, right? So now let's press the, the, the thing forward. In 2002, I got hired at that last church down here planted called Walnut Ridge. They hired me in 2002. And when I got there, it was just, it was kind of an accepted norm. You need to get ready because we're gonna plant you eventually. So like it or not, it's coming. So you might wanna think about that. And that led to a moment in 2009 where um, they were willing to plant me and a group of people out of, of uh, Walnut Ridge. So now we have Stonegate that gets planted. Now let's just pause over that for a moment. Let me make this comment. When Walnut Ridge planted Stonegate, they were sucking air financially in a bad way. It was a super tense time and they allowed a group of people out of that student ministry to plant a church in Midlothian. There's not one in a hundred pastors who would have said yes to that in that moment. That was a costly moment of multiplication. I am so deeply grateful for their willingness to do that, even when it hurt in a deep, deep way for them. So now let me just work you through the history of the last seven years. We're gonna turn seven here in a couple of weeks. Let me just work you through the last seven years of Stonegate's history. So over the last seven years, we have played a part in planting many churches. I wanna just kind of walk you through the first 13 of those churches. The first 13 are there. Now for these churches, we have played a part financially, 
and or coaching or some combination thereof to get them up and running. Let me just work through these guys really quickly. Jim Essien, he pastors the Paradox Church in Fort Worth. They are just blowing and going, doing really great. Ross Appleton, Christ Community Church up in Denton, Texas. Jeremy Pace, Christ City Church in East Dallas. Ben Conley is at the City Church in Fort Worth doing really good. Jeff Lawrence at Redemption Church in Edmond, Oklahoma. They're doing great. Jason Brewer at Mercy Church in Frisco, Texas. John Murphy at Veritas Church in Fayetteville, North Carolina. They are doing so good. He sent me a picture here recently of a bunch of people they just baptized. Aaron Fair is in Southeast Asia trying to plant a church. Pastor Sudhakar is in Hyderabad, India, who has planted a church. William and is trying to plant a heck of a lot of churches out of their place. Uh, William Subash is in Bangalore, India. They have recently planted and they're already planting more churches. Dustin Neely at Refuge Church in Franklin, Tennessee. They just started last week, had 140 people on their core team, just blown and going and doing great. Jason Hatch is in Re uh, at, at Redeemer Midland in Midland, Texas. They started about a year ago and they are doing so great. Got off to such a, a great start. A guy named Dan Romer in Bath, England. That's 13 churches. And, uh, and here's the, the incredible thing about those 13 churches. There's already another generation of churches starting. So there's already that layer. Those churches are now starting to plant churches. Like Stonegate, just know this. You already have like great granddaughter or granddaughter type churches out there right now. Isn't that an incredible thing to think about? That is multiplication happening right now through you. Now, let me um, go up the ladder here. And I wanna talk about kind of how we operate with church planting residents. There are some churches that we're gonna plant. They're gonna have a real internal feel to us. Like people are gonna come in, they're gonna spend time with us and then we're going to plant those guys. So the first one we did that with was Casey Maddox. Casey Maddox uh, got to Stonegate almost five years ago. He spent about two years with us, a little over two years. And then we sent him out with a few people um, to Lawrence, Kansas to plant a church. Um, they have planted Free City Church in Lawrence and they're just doing great. They're about two years in right now. And the Lord is just giving them the miracles they need to, to head towards sustainability and towards fruitfulness as a church family. So they're doing so good in Lawrence. And then at the beginning of this year in February, Brad Marvin, who came in about uh, two years ago to Stonegate as a church planting resident, um, we sent him out. Um, we sent him with about 30 or 40 of our people to be able to plant a church up in the Arlington area. And they are doing great. It's called Restore Church. Uh, they're meeting up in Arlington, doing a really good job up there right now. The Lord is giving them the miracles that they need to, to work towards sustainability. And then lastly, we have had Devian Valentine. Um, if you've been around here for long, you know him. He's been with us for about four years. He came as a church planting resident. It's just been a long road to get us ready to plant. And we are now to the point of saying to Valentine, it is time to do this. It is time to send another Paul, another Barnabas out to plant a church. The church is gonna be called Omni Fellowship and it's gonna be planted up in the Cedar Hill area. So we've got a video that we want you to watch that will just kind of clue you into some of the happenings with this. You can go ahead and come on up, Miss Alicia. We got really mushy in the first service. I don't know what's about to happen now, if we're going there again or not. But, but man, Valentine, I just wanna tell you again just how much I love and appreciate you, how deeply grateful I've been for your friendship. Um, when I think about the last four years of my life, one of, the, uh, one of the things that has given me more joy than just about anything else in my life is watching the Lord grow and mature you, equip you, and get you ready to plant this church. It has been such a deep joy watching that. And when I think about the void that's gonna be left, it feels like a Paul Barnabas moment to me. I mean, it feels like we're sending out one of our best right now in this moment, and it's gonna leave a, a gaping void in our church family. I Man, I want you to know you're gonna be missed. 
and we so love and value you. And Alicia, man, I want you to know how just deeply grateful we are for you. It's been so fun to watch the Lord work in you and to be at work in you. I'm just so, so deeply grateful for you. So I want you to go ahead and bow with me for a minute. And we're going to create just a moment here as we, uh, as we think about Omni Fellowship and just the value of multiplication in our church family and just that whole thing. And, uh, you know, there's been multiple people in the room who the Lord has already been stirring and like, you've already kind of pushed your chips in with, with Omni and, and you're going to be going with Valentine to plant Omni Fellowship. And I mean, I'm just so deeply grateful for that. Uh, I mean, the, the team approach to planting is just where it's at. And there are others in the room who the Lord's going to be at work in you, stirring those sort of things, talking to you about those sort of things. And we're just praying that there would be a real openness in our people toward moments like this and that the Lord would give discernment on, to speak really clearly, should I? And he would speak really clearly in moments where it's, you shouldn't. Like both of those two things, that the Lord would speak so clearly to our people and that we would be a church family open to whatever it is the Lord wants for us. And so I wanna pray for you to that end, that the Lord would be talking to all of us um, like that. And so Father, would you please be engaging with every one of our hearts? God, talk to us, speak to us. Help us see what we need to see. Help us hear, help us have ears that are unclogged, that can hear your voice, that still small voice. And Lord, I pray that you would put in us a deep value, every one of us in the room for multiplication, whether that is here internally at Stonegate, that, that we would all be in on that, or whether in moments like this, that means that that value takes us to, toward helping another church be planted. But God, I pray that value would be so, so deep in us. So God, will you speak? And, and Father, would you, by your grace, help us be obedient people to you? And it's in your good name that we ask that. Amen. <clears throat> so here's what we're going to do next. I'm going to ask Valentine and Alicia just to make your way right down there. And then if you are in with, with helping them plant, if you've kind of already pushed your chips in or the Lord is like after you on that, I want you to go ahead and come down. We're just going to kind of fill the front kind of side of this stage right here. So just go ahead and come on down there where you are. And we're going to have a moment together. And we're about to get all Acts 13.3 on them. That's what's about to go down here. So... And I told the first service this, just, you know, walking up, like Jordan Patterson walked up earlier and Curtis Batchel is down there. And one of the cool little stories in that is that they helped us plant Stonegate seven years ago. Just kind of a cool little thread in this moment of just how multiplication happens in a church family. And so um, here's what we're going to do next. I want to read to you again, Acts 13, 3. Here's what it says. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. And we're going to do that this morning. We're gonna come up and we're gonna lay our hands on them. We're gonna pray for them. And, uh, and this is gonna kind of be one of those moments where we're gonna send this crew of people um, out. So with that said, I would like for you, and this is just kind of a you invitation to all um, to come on down and we're gonna do this up here where you're gonna physically lay your hands on them. So if you wanna go ahead and make your way up, up here and... And if you are uh, like way in the back and you can't get a hand on them, you can kind of just from where you are, just extend a hand up and that would be just fine too. But I'd like to just kind of fill this area up as we pray for them. And uh, so just to make it less awkward when you pray for them in a moment, if you're one of the people going, just you don't have to say anything other than this, but just lift your head up and just say your name so they'll know who they're praying for. Preferably out loud where they can hear that. That'd be perfect. <laughs> <clears throat> 
Okay, so, uh, so first of all, to this team of people, man, I just want you to know that we're in with you. We're praying for you. We're so excited that the Lord has, uh, has put it in you to, to jump out in this moment. And as a church family, here's one of the things that we have to get really good at if we're gonna value multiplication. And that is something you could call gospel goodbyes. That uh, they're bit, they're, there's a bitterness to them, isn't there? Like when I look at a lot of people in this room, I'm like, I don't want you to leave. Don't do it, you know? So there's a bitterness there, but at the same time, if we value multiplication, there is something so sweet about that. And so this is kind of a moment where we're doing a gospel goodbye with these guys. And so here's what I would like for us to do. Um, I want you just there where you are to the, the person you're kind of laying your hands on there to pray for them out loud, just there where you are. I'm gonna give you a couple of minutes to do that. And, uh, and then I'll close us after that. Is that cool? So just there where you are, you can pray out loud for them, um, that person that's just there in front of you. Let's do it. So Father, we are asking for your blessing upon this group of people. God, and I pray that, that first of all, just for us as a Stonegate church, God, that you would plant in us a deep value of multiplication. God, you would help us be in on that. God, you would help us to become good at gospel goodbyes. And Father, I pray for this church family that's beginning, Omni Fellowship. God, we pray that you would just break open, crack open your mercy and grace and dump it all over them. God, we pray that you would give them the many miracles that they're gonna need if they're gonna reach sustainability and, and vibrancy. And so God, would you do that? Would you give them miracles in terms of their location? God, would you give them miracles in terms of money that they're gonna need? Would you give them miracles in terms of people they're gonna need? God, would you do the hundreds and hundreds of miracles between now and then that they're gonna so desperately need? And God, I pray that we could just stand back in the middle of that and celebrate your faithfulness to them. And Father, I pray for Valentine and for Alicia, Father, that you would protect their marriage. God, that there would be a uncanny sort of tenderness and sensitivity that would be there between them. That, that could only be of you. Father, I pray that you would protect a spiritual vibrancy across this church. Father, I pray that there would be worshipers of you that make up this core team. Wholehearted, whole life surrender. God, they would be people praying and fasting, feeling deep down their dependency upon you. Father, I pray that they would be really, really good at listening and obeying. God, give them sensitive hearts and sensitive ears to your voice. And Father, we pray for all the people that are gonna be reached through this church. God, we're just kind of thanking you in advance for all the people that are gonna meet Jesus because of this church family. God, we're thanking you in advance of all the people that are gonna be cared for because of this church family. And so Lord, we are just so, so deeply grateful. And God, we're just already looking forward to the moment where this church family is having this moment, where Omni is planting that daughter church. And God, we get to celebrate that victory with them. So God, we're just, we're asking you to do everything needed to make that come true. So, oh God, would you do that? Oh God, would you do that? And it's in your great name that we ask that. Amen. And as we finish up, I just want you to go ahead and bow your head there where you are. And I'm just asking that the spirit of God would press into you the things that needed to be heard by you today that the things that didn't need to be heard by you would just be wiped away. But just ask yourself the question, is spiritual vibrancy, is that evident in my life? A real worship, a wholehearted surrender to the Lord, prayer and fasting, listening and obeying, not just like moments in my past, but like right now, moments where I'm listening and obeying the Lord. 
And so, Father, would you, would you just deal with our hearts now? Would you help us see Jesus more clearly? God, for those in the room who need to give their life to Jesus and meet Jesus this morning, Father, I pray there would be something in them that just unlocks and they're just ready to throw their life towards you right now in this moment. So God, do your work among us now. And it's in your good name. Amen. Why don't you stand with us as we sing? Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.